want to send you off, even if you're sticking around Lincoln or First Street for a while, uh, with a message from Proverbs. Maybe consider it a bit of a commencement address. But I also want to add to any of you, uh, because we're all in such different places, in any kind of a phase of moving out of, from under parental authority, whether it's into the work world, uh, other ways that you might be doing that. And as I said last week, really anybody that's about 15 to 30, this message really, really uh, drills in for all of you. My own first summer and school year out of high school was one of the hardest years of my life. Lots of dark days, and you can put the picture up. Uh, the faces belie this, but uh, that's Beth and me at about our freshman, maybe the beginning of our sophomore years of college. Uh, when we first met and were beginning to date. Um, but those were dark days, uh, hard, hard days. And then we both transferred down to the University of Nebraska, and I still describe that as some of the most aggressively attacking days of my own faith uh, that I experience. So you can take the picture down now. <laughs> <laughs> You are facing going out into a very difficult world, and you are in a pivotal phase of your life where you either start to really swim on your own or begin either quickly or slowly to sink. And I personally believe that Satan, within America and the way our culture operates, goes with particular vengeance after those who are leaving the safety of the home for the first time and venturing out into this big, bad world. The number of predators uh, in every kind of meaning of that is incredible. And for us as adults, many of us will say that some of the deepest regrets of choices we've made in our lives, some of our most egregious mistakes we made in our youth. Proverbs does tell us, as I reminded you last week, and will often, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. When we are young, our strength, our vigor, our zeal, our passion for life are at their highest, and our wisdom and discernment are at or near their lowest. And that combination can prove fatal. That's why Paul begged God in Psalm 25, or David begged Paul in Psalm 25 to remember not the sins of my youth. Please don't bring them up, Lord. I have enough regret over them. Wish I could redo them. And Paul warned Timothy to flee youthful passions. Because there are so many impulses running through the young that they can do nothing but run from and run and run. So Proverbs is partly designed to help parents parent within the home while they're raising the children, but also for youth as they leave the home to embody these things, to move from adolescence to adulthood, from being what Proverbs calls simple to what the New Testament speaks of as maturity. And I realize that preaching to one segment of the body, some of you might think that uh, there isn't necessarily much for you here, such as when we preach on marriage or when we preach on singleness or when we preach on certain aspects. But Think if you listen, you will find much that you can apply to your own life. We're going to do this by looking at two 
four-verse segments uh, from chapter 1, first of all, verses 7 to 10, what I'll kind of describe as three voices or factors that profoundly shape life. Verse 7 of chapter 1, fearing the Lord. Verse 8, hearing and not forsaking parents. And verse 10, not consenting to sinners. And then we'll flip over with whatever time remains to Proverbs chapter 3 and look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Trusting in the Lord, acknowledging the Lord, and fearing the Lord as pivotal. And yes, there, is, there are bookends of fearing the Lord on both of these. And then there are obviously additional sidelines on all of these Proverbs as well. But let's ask the Lord as we begin to open his powerful word to work. Lord, you tell us in James 1 that if we need wisdom, we don't look in ourselves, we don't look around at mankind, we don't look at humans, we go to you and we look to you and we ask, we beg, we acknowledge we need your wisdom. And Lord, what a beautiful promise that you love to give it to us and to give it generously. And so, Lord, this morning, would you be generous in your giving to these graduates, to others who are leaving the home, either now or are in the process or will soon begin that process. And you warn us also in James that the number one thing we must not do when we ask is doubt. Because that makes us double-minded people. So, God, would you keep us from that? When you reveal through your word and through your people wisdom from on high, would, we, would you help us embrace that, follow it, live it, and engage our whole lives by it? And not ever back down from cowardice or from leaning on our own understanding. So please work for making us a wiser church, wiser graduates, wiser parents, wiser elders, and wiser senior citizens. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So Proverbs 1-7, I realize we skipped 1 through 6. It's an introduction that just maybe was added after these others were compiled. So one way you could possibly think of this is that verse 7 is actually perhaps the way the list originally started before there was an introduction put in. And the idea is that the noblest truth, the greatest proverb, the most significant thing of all is put right on the table, right at the beginning, front foremost, the fear of the Lord. And here Solomon acknowledges it as the beginning of knowledge. And then in chapter 9, in Proverbs 1 to 9, as I think most of you know, is this one long, big, kind of more topical series of Proverbs before chapter 10 through 30 really deals with much more specific, uh, detailed Proverbs. But at the end of this long nine-chapter uh, introduction is the return to this theme in verse 10, with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do not forget that. In other words, the better we know God, because that's also what comes in this pursuit the more we fear him and the wiser we become. So much here. We'll just barely scratch the surface. Uh, I just told, I told Beth editing this week was so hard. 
trying to narrow it down, narrow it, narrow it down, and you're still uh, going to be overwhelmed with it. But let's roll through some of this. The fear of the Lord is a concept that's particularly highlighted in the scriptures in the wisdom literature. So you think particularly of how much it's mentioned in Job. In fact, I would just summarize Job as a 42-chapter story of how a very righteous man had to be humbled by God to realize that he didn't fear the Lord nearly enough. And then 45 times in the 150 Psalms, 19 of those by David himself, and then 19 times in Proverbs as well. And then in Ecclesiastes, it's there. And is Solomon's concluding point that everything, the whole duty of man, is summarized by fear God and obey his commands. Now, we Americans don't like to fear. We have a lot of fears, but we don't like it. And for some of us, even hearing the fear of the Lord has a distortion to it. It almost is seen as an undesirable thing or only an Old Testament thing. Uh, I hope by the end of the morning, you'll see that it's very prominent in the New Testament as well. But we prefer a God that's tamed down, that we're comfortable with, that is nice to us, that doesn't scare us, that caters to our every need. But if we take the Bible's portrayal of God, we see that there is a superior fear that God calls us to have, and it's of him. Number of definitions, way too many, but just trying to give you a robust picture of it. A revering of God of, as a vastly superior being. So superior, it is terrifying the further we get into knowing him and understanding him. It's a deep humility that comes from just the sheer greatness of God. Here's one clip from Job in chapter 23. So it's about halfway through where Job says, he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. It's an acute awareness of who God truly is, how utterly holy he is, and how utterly sinful we remain to be. A necessary awe of him, including his holiness, his judgment, his discipline, all of his ways, his nature, his works. And in light of that, a feeling that never goes away, even in grace, a deep sense of our own unworthiness of even being able to know him. Michael Horton described the fear of God as both a dread and a phobia, taking it from the Hebrew word there, and then described it as being gripped by an awe that makes you want to simultaneously get closer and run away. And of the many, 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 many great things of a Christian home where God is spoken of daily, as Deuteronomy has been exhorting us, one of the dangers is to become dulled to the truths of God, to have heard them and heard them and heard the stories and heard the verses and heard the Sunday school lessons on the nature of God and the family devotions on it, to where, as the saying goes, familiarity breeds apathy.
Well, we don't even get out of chapter 1 before God shows us how significant or how dangerous not having the fear of him is. So look at verse 29, and you will see in there a description of the fools who hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And now we can put that, in. that's in the middle of this section, which for those of you who are here for Sunday school will sound incredibly like Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 24 of Proverbs 1. Because I, and that's wisdom speaking as a human, as a person, as a woman, have called you and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand, no one has heeded. You've ignored all my counsel, you would have none of my reproof. And now here comes the response. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently. You will not find me. Because you hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. From the beginning, as you were warned and told. You would have none of my counsel, despised all my proof. Therefore, you will eat the fruit of your way and have the fill of your own devices. Incredible motivation in a negative way that God gives us here for how important the fear of the Lord is. If you remember nothing else from what we look at in Proverbs, nothing else, remember this one verse and make it your life goal. The reason all of us are not wiser than we are is because we do not fear the Lord enough. Now, the rest of chapter 1, going back to uh, verse 8, the rest of chapter 1 starts to carry out a basic pattern that is prevalent throughout Proverbs. Two voices, two strong influences, two persuasions, two paths to take are put side by side and contrasted, and wisdom calls us to discern which voice we will listen to. And in verses 8 and 10, we will see the two contrasts here. Inside the home, the parental influence, voice, and outside the home in verse 10, the peer or cultural voice. The point is, they will often conflict, but they do require one to make a choice. You will listen to one or the other. You will take one or the other path. You cannot straddle both. So verse 8 begins with the first of those voices, the parental voices. Huge amounts of instruction that godly parents pour into their kids. Any young person raised in a godly home emphasizing the wisdom of God needs to appreciate that. Thank God for what an incredible beginning to life you've been given. And then keep it fresh in his mind and continue to hold on to it long after leaving the home. The first place, the fear of the Lord in verse 7, is manifested in a human being's life is by a humble honoring of the parents and whatever good instruction God has given them through it. But I would say especially if parents have diligently sought to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If your parents have taught you to fear the Lord, they have given you the greatest gift happy graduation. Becoming independent does not mean tossing aside everything 
in order to finally do what you want. And Proverbs 15:20 warns us that a man, a young man, a young woman who acts foolishly is actually, whether they verbalize it or not, despising his mother. And God will have some words about that later. And then the reason why, the motivation, is because that kind of instruction is a garland. It beautifies your life. It gives you a tremendous enhancement with which to begin life. And God has given you a huge blessing. So in the New Testament, when children are called to obey their parents and to honor their father and mother, it finishes with, that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. And you'll hear some of that same kind of language in Deuteronomy. You'll hear some of that same kind of language in Proverbs as well. So God's opening call is, take full advantage of the number one blessing you've been given. Parents who have taught you about God, about his word, about the way that life works from his perspective, you cannot... Ask God to make you wise in other ways if you are disregarding the most obvious way he's given you. And Proverbs, just as a brief note here, also tells us that the way the kids of parents act as they become adults has a huge impact on those parents. Two Proverbs that speak of the joy, a wise son or daughter, Makes a father so glad. And then numerous heartache ones. Proverbs 10, the second half of that verse, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Then it goes even deeper. It's a grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. And then it goes even further. Proverbs 19, a foolish son is a ruin to his father. Immediately then, in Proverbs 1.10, God now brings the contrasting voice to the parental voice. And it's a critical part of whether one will walk wisely or not right from the get-go. So verse 10 tells us, my son, if or when or as you can count on it, sinners enticing you into whatever it might be, Verses 11 to 14 give one example of financially taking advantage of people. If that one doesn't resonate with you, this applies to a thousand other scenarios as well. Um, If you are enticed or when you are enticed, do not consent are the three words at the end of verse 10. And then if you peek ahead at verse 15, you'll see do not walk in the way with them. It's a very common word picture for Proverbs. Or hold back your foot from stepping onto and walking on their paths. In reality, we let many people convince us, entice us into many foolish choices that we make. And the warning here is, you are going to have that coming at you from all kinds of angles, from all kinds of ways, from all sorts of people. Be prepared to stand firm. Be ready to say no, and no, and no, and no, because they will come fast and furious at you. Far more than seeing who chooses you to be their friend, choose your friends and choose them carefully. 
and as hard as it can be, continually assess how they are affecting you spiritually. A single friend can lead you to forsake your family's years of teaching. And I've seen it happen way more than I wish I had. The way into folly is almost always fast and easy. And the way out of it is long and hard. Charles Bridges, commentator on Proverbs, says this. Take care, young people. Do not imagine, even for one minute, that God will turn a blind eye to your sinful desires or that he will excuse them as foibles of youth. Such ropes of sin will bind you for eternity if they are not broken by the power of God's grace. Shun the company of evil people as you would avoid the plague. And then let me just take you to a few New Testament. When I can, I'll try to align the Proverbs with some New Testament truths or Proverbs as well. So here's what Peter wrote. Can you get me more? Here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So that's the set-up thought. And now he brings it into life. For the time that is past, whatever time in your life wasted on fleshly passions, is su- sufficient, suffices. It's enough. You don't need any more. You don't want any more. For doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he describes it in these five ways. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and then overall, lawless idolatry. What a description 2,000 years ago of our American college world and 20th world. With respect to this, they, the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In other words, when the enticing doesn't work, then the attacking begins. And I certainly felt that at the university. For they will give, not because of Don Becker, at the university overall, in the department I was in. I don't, I don't mean to bash anybody that's involved with the system, um, but it's a very, very, very dark, dark place. And I think those that work there will tell you that as well. Okay, sorry, back to the thought. In the same flood of debauchery, uh, and they will malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you know what that text finished with? The fear of the Lord, that same emphasis and thought. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, don't give in. Don't go that direction. Continue holding to the path you are on in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it which was a godly mother and grandmother, not his father that we know of. And then another New Testament text, Paul to Timothy again, flee youthful desires, which we noted before, and pursue, and now what a contrast to what Peter described that the world goes after. Here, the call is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then he adds this important relational aspect. Along with this small group of people, 
who call on the Lord from a pure heart like you do. Greg Morris put it this way in a post a while back. The world cares nothing for our eternal good. Ungodly friends cheer us on toward destruction. They bequeath the kiss of flattery, the dementor's kiss. They coddle our egos, telling us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. Even the most genuine and moral among them, the world, set sail away from God. Thus, we need a crew of Christian companions, a body to keep us from shipwreck. Finishing the course is not an individual endeavor, and eternity is at stake. Praise God for the faithful wounds of true friends who protect us from ultimate injury. They tell us plainly, you're flirting with destruction, or spiritual sloth is unacceptable. Friends who ask us hard questions, who crush the whispering lizard on our shoulder, who are for our eternal soul above our momentary feelings, these are true friends. Find these friends. Thank these friends. Imitate these friends. They are God's community of grace to you. One more, just a brief reminder. I can't remember if I put it on a slider, and I might have missed it. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We need to be among the lost, but any way in which they are influencing us towards something we might consent to that is sinful, we must, must, must remove ourselves from. And then one final thought from Proverbs 1, and I'm just skimming you ahead to verse 18, because it's just such a word picture. The, the reason we don't consent is that what they're ultimately doing, even though there's immediate pleasure and reward, is that they are setting an ambush for their lives. The wise see the ambush that's being set up ahead and look past the immediate enticement to see the full implications of any choice that they're making. Bridges again. If only the sinner, the careless sinner, not the daring and ungodly only, the careless one, would ponder how his heartless neglect of wisdom harms himself, how cruel he is to himself while he is despising the Savior. Every allurement of sin is the temptation of suicide or soul murder. When people grab hold of sin, as if it is as if men were in love with damnation. They love what will be their death and push away from them what would be their life. Sinners die because they want to die, or I would say because they make that choice to not fear God and instead go their own way. All right, much more could be said there. Leaf over to Proverbs 3, if you would. We're going to look briefly at a second set of thoughts, though I think you'll see a lot of parallels uh, to chapter 1 in verses 5 through 8. These are verses that Beth and I, uh, over the years, uh, particularly being a teacher and, and being involved in many graduations and all of that for 25 years, but I think for most of those 25 years, we would print out and frame... Uh, in fact, there might be a couple graduates here uh, that have those or threw them away at some point, but had framed these verses on them because I just think they're such critical components for life's priorities. And though we'll kind of talk about each of them, they're really interwoven, trusting, acknowledging, and fearing, all being very similar. Starting with verse 5, even though there's some really good stuff in verses 1 through 4. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let's start with just that line. 
Not only do wise people fear God, they wholeheartedly trust God. The same aspects of God that cause trembling produce trusting, such as the power of God. Essentially, every situation we are in will boil down to whether we truly trust God and his word and his will and his way for us to live as being the best, or that's only theoretical, and we actually really trust ourselves, trust the sinners around us or the fools around us, or trust someone or something else in this world more than we do God. Quite simply, verse 5 is calling us to own our faith. It's kind of our little uh, slogan or saying of the way. It's not riding on the coattails of our parents now, but fully parachuting out, trusting the Lord fully, deeply, his nature, his word, trusting the gospel, and those being the dominating influences of our life. Many verses that tell us about this idea of trust or living our whole lives not just to enter into salvation, but every day of our saved lives, we are walking by faith, living by faith. You can see them in multiple references throughout. Gary Nation summarizes this thought this way. Wisdom is embedded in faith, not as mere belief in doctrines or in submission to traditions, but in personal, heart-given trust in the person of the Lord. And then he emphasizes two things here, both, I think, worth noting. To trust in God is to trust in the principles of his word, but also to trust in his divine superintendence over one's life. To be wise requires tremendous trust. It takes a lot, and you have to hold it faithfully through all kinds of onslaught and all kinds of assaults trying to get you to disbelieve in God and his word. In contrast to that, though really it's just saying the opposite. Do not lean on your own understanding, or we could say do not trust in your own understanding. And verse 7 at the beginning is really capturing some of that same thought, be not wise in your own eyes. We could even throw James 1.8 here in here as well and say, don't be doubtful and double-minded. This is our automatic default, is to go to our logic, our instinct, our own feelings. Bodhi Bakum re recently noted, we're at a point in Christianity, and I'd put Christianity in quotes there, where people's feelings, desires, and emotions override what Scripture says. So, the warning here is don't think you, you know what to do in any given situation and you can just figure it out. Beware of the human tendency towards self-sufficiency. I still have to fight that on a daily basis. To leave God either out of your thought process by intentionality, you don't want to think about him or what he has to say about the issue, or by mere forgetfulness and thinking that you understand it well enough. Proverbs 12, 15 reminds us the way of a fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. Fools feel smart, don't like other people telling them what they should do, or perhaps often even suggesting it, and thinking that they've got it. So later, Proverbs warns us in chapter 28, he who trusts in his own heart 
is a fool. Smarter you think you are, the better you think you understand things, the less you will seek wisdom from God. And that is why often intelligent people aren't wise people. Verse 6 continues, In all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledging he is your savior. So acknowledging the gospel every single day keeps us fresh in who we are and what our purpose in life here is. And acknowledge him as your Lord, your king, your master whom you are serving. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ's death was so that we wouldn't just live for ourselves and for the things of this world, but that we would invest our lives for him, making him our highest priority, acknowledging whether it's our studies, our work, whatever, our, our beginning of a family, our marriage, that all of this is a responsibility before God. We acknowledge his control, his right over it, and our need to steward it well. It's an admission and confession of our inadequacy. And it really just means check with him, 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 check with him. Never stop checking with him for how you live life. And then we get the first of a couple of blessings and rewards of that here. He will make straight your paths. Much of Proverbs will speak of how the fools have crooked paths, meaning it is just a hard way to navigate life. And you're going sideways or backwards more than you're going forward. And the idea of the one who acknowledges the Lord and walks forward trusting him will walk with an incredible straightness. Um, it just makes life much less uh, inhibiting and confusing and frustrating. And now we come back to the same thought in uh, verse 7 as we did in Proverbs 1, verse 7. And that is the fear of the Lord. And I have like another page and a half of thoughts about the fear of the Lord. Let me, let me for sake of time, scrunch a few of those together. But it's so, so important. Where I wanted to go with you on this one is just the New Testament emphasis on this. So you don't just think this is Old Covenant, Old Testament, the old scary way. Grace has changed all that. Now it's all about love. Huge important things. But listen to these texts from the New Testament. First of all, from uh, Peter. A little longer section. You'll see in the middle where the word fear shows up. Almost dead center. But I want, I want you to see a context here that I think is helpful. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you'll be holy for I am holy. And if you call on a father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which is the whole time you're living here on earth as a sojourner. And now he brings the gospel into bear, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb. So see, three things here. God being so holy, the reality of being judged by God, and the massive price God has paid in his son for our salvation. And all of those should lead you to live life here 
with a very holy, careful fear. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Let us cleanse ourselves. So here's the same emphasis on holiness. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And our next line in Proverbs is going to be turn away from evil. So same idea. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Matthew 10, Jesus warned all of us, do not fear those who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Fear him who can destroy both in hell. And then in Philippians 2, our call is to work out our salvation, not just with happy feelings, but with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. And that God working in us should bring this holy, reverent fear. There's more, lots more that we could say about that. I just want to bring you back again to say, especially those of you who are young, nothing more significant I need to tell you. This is the ground floor for all wisdom. This is the ground floor for all of life. This is the only entrance into God's wisdom. The number one reason we aren't all wiser is that we don't fear God nearly enough. Final thought. At the end of verse 7, I think I've lost track of my verse numbers. Very similar to 110 and 115. Turn away from evil. Say no. Um, Proverbs 14, 27 reinforces this. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from, same language, the snares of death. This is the lifelong critical duty of every follower of Jesus, daily repenting, turning, 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 without playing with sin, thinking it isn't that big of a deal, taking quick little forays into it, dilly-dallying like the world does. I would just remind you, and soon we're going to the Lord's table, of 1 Peter 2.24, that Christ Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, not only so that we would be free from the punishment of sin, but so that equally, just as importantly, we would be free from the power of sin over us and the hold of sin that it has on us, that we would now have the ability in Christ through the Spirit's power to turn away from any and all sin. Editing a little bit. Let me remind you of one other New Testament. It's on there. Second one down. One other New Testament proverb that really comes into play here as well as just a reminder. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. No one can defy this principle. Whatever one sows, he will reap. That will always be the case in whatever way God works that out. Nothing you do or become is without consequence, either positively or negatively. Once again, see here, how much you fear the Lord affects how much you sin. It's impossible to be properly fearing him and to be comfortable with sinning at the same time because they're just opposed to each other. I sin because I don't rightly fear the Lord and I don't rightly fear sin. So 2 Timothy 2.22 again, flee youthful passions. Charles Bridges Take care, young people. Do not imagine even for one minute that God will turn a blind eye 
on your sinful desires so that he will excuse them as foibles of, Ruth, of youth. Whoops, I put that in, this quote in twice. Such ropes of sin will bind you for eternity if they are not broken by the power of God's grace. And then verse 8, just very quickly, the encouragement, the reward of the spiritual vitality. You don't necessarily see that healing and refreshment on the outside. Somebody with, riddled with cancer whose body is decaying can be filled with incredible spiritual vitality and health because of the wisdom and God's perspective that they've taken in. One more quote by Charles Bridges, and we'll move to the Lord's table. And one more verse. Bridges, those in the world have no concept of the real nature of wisdom's pleasant ways. To them, religion is associated with cold, little to enjoy, but they only see half the picture. They see what religion takes away, but they do not see or look at or consider what it gives. They cannot comprehend that while it denies sinful pleasures, it overflows with spiritual pleasures. Love that thought. Let me finish with this verse for those of you moving into your own identity and life and choices. Paul's charge to Timothy that he should live in such a way that no one will despise his youth or his immaturity. No one will be critical of the Lord because of the way he's living foolishly. But that instead, he will, by being so wise and faithful, even as a young person, set the believers an example. And Paul identifies five themes that are going to be heavy throughout Proverbs. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. The wording this morning at the end of Deuteronomy was, choose life. The wording in Proverbs is, choose wisdom. Whatever it costs you, get wisdom. If you get nothing else, get wisdom.